Wow. Yes, we are recording. Cool. Yeah. Yay. All right. All right. Cool. So um, this is our very first um, mini episode for Nature Chat, um, <laughs> as we are going to call it. Uh, Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so since this is the first mini episode, I guess we should probably just talk about what's going on. So this is a recap episode. We're going to talk about everything that happened in the first episode. We're going to talk about um, some of the things very briefly that we discussed. And um, and then if we have a guest like we do today, um, our one of our players, Nancy Miarelli. Ah, she's amazing. Um, we are going to do a very short interview with them to figure out what they are all about. And um, then maybe end with talking about current events or something like that. Just something, maybe something cool in the news that you should read or a scientific paper that you should check into. Um, So yeah, uh, let's begin. Uh, Cheryl, you want to do the recap? Yeah, (laughs) because it just happened and I did the thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so this was our very first episode of Nature Check. So um, all of the individual party members um, or the the player characters uh, found themselves in a uh, burgeoning port town of New Seychester on the newly accessible continent of Arda. Um, So they all made their way through the town and eventually some of them taking maybe a longer route there than others um, found themselves... The longest route. (laughs) The longest route. Um, they they all found themselves in a, a tavern called the Marked Bird um, in the market uh, district of New Seychester. Um, and just as uh, Nancy's character Kay um, had entered the tavern on a delivery run, um, some hooligans in the bar, some ruffians, uh, started a fight over some uh, bad fish uh, that they had been served in their meal. Um, and uh, they attacked the the barkeeper or the the tavern owner, and uh, combat ensued where the PCs did a great job um, defending and healing and protecting some of them. (laughs) (laughs) My character definitely did not. (laughs) Okay. Um, And also slicing and dicing up the bad guys. My character was maybe a little bit too brutal. Slicey dicey. Um, (laughs) And then uh, a guard came and, and escorted the bad guys away, Um, The player characters had a few moments to sort of get to know one another, and they also um, met the cartographer of the Royal Academy of Explorers uh, from Tenibria, um, which is uh, a human country um, on another continent, and this cartographer, uh, Casper Reed, uh, wants the player characters to, um, since it sounds like they might be going out to explore the continent of Arda anyway, he wants them to bring back information about the things they find while they're exploring, and he will pay them for it. Yep. Um, yeah. And then at the end of the episode, it's pretty we had dingy a... up front, though. To be I honest, I mean, he didn't have any money; he just had a giant. Pile we didn't get a base. grant. We didn't get a grant. <laughs> we're, we're, we're running no grant funding. We're writing some grants. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then at the end of the the very end of the episode, we had a nice, albeit heavy, uh, a conversation about the idea of what Casper is asking the player characters to do, which is basically a colonizer sort of uh, perspective on this quote unquote new and undiscovered world which, yes, is exactly what I had intended by introducing this setting and that character. Um, so it was a really good conversation for us to sort of um, yeah. begin tackling that question of... Uh, and shout out to Rebecca, who, like, 
like uh, yes yeah. started the conversation yep. by not so subtly holding a piece of paper up that said colonization to yeah. the guy. <laughs> um, so yeah um it was it was definitely the beginning of a conversation that i'm hoping we will continue to have amongst ourselves and with um you the audience yeah. uh, as as we continue this story because it's it's a concept that is going to be rather central to um how we interact with the world of Arda that I'm creating. So, um, what, what's going to be happening kind of the first time next week? It sounds like we're going to rescue someone. Um, yeah. So the, 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 I guess we can call them the plot hooks, um, that are dangling in front of you right now. Uh, Cedric seems real bent on, um, helping the girl that he saw in the doorway of a brothel, um, there's also Which started his epically long journey to get exactly. To the it was like yeah. a the family circus. <laughs> the little boy like takes the dotted line route. Have you guys have you seen that comic? Yeah, yeah. he like so, literally walked past the so, meeting point and it was like, oh no, yeah, and he just kept going. going. I was like, yeah. you saw the thing. Okay, um, yeah. So so it sounds like Cedric wants to help out um, the girl he saw in the doorway of the brothel. Um, you also have this weird thing where like the fish was so bad that these ruffians decided to attack poor Leon Feist, the owner of the Marked Bird Tavern over it. Um, so that might be worth um, asking a few more questions about. And then, of course, you've got this thing where a few uh, members of your group were already planning on going out and exploring Arda, and Casper Reed has asked you that uh, you just bring back information. Um, so you could just start exploring. Yeah, well, and... Yeah, sounds like and, you've got a few different avenues um, to get going on next time. Yeah. And my my character is uh, um, one of those um, yeah. one of those people. So looking looking for colleagues. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I guess um, I guess uh, so. The first I guess the first question that we should really address on um, this on this um, minisode, and it's gonna get in. It's actually gonna lead really nicely into what we were talking about um, with the colonization stuff. Um, but you know, why are we choosing D and D to talk about science? <laughs> um, so I, this is I, I'm a huge nerd, and I've been intrigued by the idea of D and D for a while. And uh, um, I'd also, um, as part of my own science communication efforts, started thinking about how we could use video games and tabletop role playing games to teach uh, biology and ecology principles. Um, and because ecology is a huge part of D&D, even though that's not necessarily something people think about. There are many, many monster manuals. Um, there are lots of creatures that we populate this world with. And there are many biomes and ecosystems where those creatures live. And, and in pe- fact, I actually, Mike, one of my dream jobs is actually being like a, an environment video game creator. Because I was always so pissed off to find like there are too many apex predators here. Like there's no way this thing could be that big. There's no way this scorpion lives here, you know? Yeah. So I had always been thinking about ecology and video games for a long time. Um, and wanted to make them right and better. <laughs> yeah, well, that and that's. Uh, I had a conversation on Twitter with Derek Hennen, and I'm so oh, sorry, I'm awesome. forgetting the other person right now. Um, but we were talking about how in um, Zelda: Breath of the Wild, how you uh, was it you shake? 
I don't know. I don't remember. You shake like some kind of tree and like the wrong seed falls out of it or something like that. And so, yeah, it was this idea that like, no, like that, that feels simple, but like it's, you know, it's not. And, 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 you know, so how can we use these games and, and the fact that player characters in a D and D story would venture everywhere from a swamp to the frozen peak of a mountain to subterranean layers. And there are all these different creatures that live there. And like, of course you wouldn't put a violet fungus at the top of a frozen mountain because of course it doesn't go there, right? So like they have biome notes and and environment notes in the monster manuals. And those are my favorite books because I love thinking about how to populate this world with all these monsters. Um, So yeah, that's something I've been intrigued by for a while. um, And I was so excited that Joe (laughs) had um, uh, not only um, the good idea, but also the gumption to, to tweet about it so that we could start finding one another um (laughs) yeah yeah well um how this whole thing started was it was um and i can't remember the person's name right now but they were like yeah it would be really fun to um start a DD game because uh um you know apparently every every DD game that uh uh is ongoing is so far along that it's really difficult to um get other people to join um so you know, I, I sort of took that to heart and I was like, well, you know, what if, what if we could, you know, just sort of play a D and D game amongst scientists. And, um, I, it's, the idea sort of died a little bit because I wasn't really quite sure what to do with it. And like there, so one of the things that I, so there's two things about D and D that I've always found really interesting. And one of them was how it can bring people to, um, together and show how people interact. And um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a really good episode of Community called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which I think does this really well. And um, my my whole thing with all of my SciComm projects have, has always been humanizing scientists and showing how scientists interact and how we think and we solve problems and getting us into a role-playing game like this and actually getting us to solve problems, I think is a really good analog for, you know, how scientists do lab work because we all have different skills. We all have different abilities and we collaborate amongst once amongst each other to, you know, fully utilize those abilities. Um, the other thing that I thought, the other thing that I think is really interesting about D and D, um, comes from, uh, the show Stranger Things, where the kids actually use the language of Dungeons and Dragons to um, be able to explain what's happening to them. And I think that there's some really good analogs in D&D, um, as you and um, Cheryl were talking about, Nancy, there's some really good analogs in D&D for the natural world, especially with the um, cultures that you encounter, the um, ways in which you have to interact with people and the ways in which um the uh ways in which um uh people sort of have to interact so um i think that there's i felt that there was a lot of really interesting stuff that we could do but i wasn't really sure how to sort of mold it all together and then you know cheryl came along and really sort of um 
push this idea to completion, and she's the one who had all of the good ideas. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, like I said, you were the one who was brave enough to tweet about it in the first place, and and I uh, I didn't want to step on your idea, but when you said, oh, I'll DM, but I've never played before, and I was like, oh, I think this is a good idea, and I don't want it to fall apart because you don't know, you know, like, yeah. like it, it, it was definitely from a place of, like, I want this to succeed, and, and it is so hard, it is so hard to play this game if you've never played before, let alone yeah. trying to like run it and so yeah I, I i saw um how much positive response it got from your tweet and i was like this is a thing that should happen because people are enthusiastic about it so yeah, yeah I'm so and, excited that we've managed to work yeah. together well and it took it took like what six months of development something like that <laughs> This is this has been in the works for a while. So in amongst me trying to finish my master's thesis and you starting a PhD program and all of the other things about life that happens. Yeah. Oh God. So um, yeah. So uh, moving on to um, the sort of theme of the episode, which I think was uh, colonization. Definitely. Yeah. Um, this idea of you guys coming to a new unexplored place and um i mean it's new to all of you um which is fine and even it's uh, the town itself is new to everyone except nancy's character so like yeah you know you are exploring it in terms of like learning it yourselves um but yeah this idea that oh well some of us are here to explore and to find things out and we you know want want things and need things from this place and so it's um, some of the player characters and many of the NPCs or the non-player characters are all viewing this continent as uh, in a very utilitarian way, right? There are things here that we can take, things yeah. here that we that we can get, um, whether that's something physical like resources or something um, uh, non-tangible like uh, the information Fletcher or Lucanus are looking for, right? Those are... Yeah. Um, yeah, the, there are things to be gotten here. And so, yeah, this is a colonization in a very literal sense and also in the sort of, like, intellectual colonization. Yeah. And, I, think, oh. I think my character is interesting because she's, like, lived in this town her whole life and she hasn't really thought about the outside world. So she has, like, nothing personal to gain from it. I think she's coming from... And she's young, too. She's, like, about 18-ish. She doesn't actually know how old she is and she grew up on the streets. So I think it'll be really interesting from her perspective because she's a little bit naive. Like she is really just going out because she's curious about the world around her and is not necessarily looking to get anything from it. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting. She won't really have really any preconceived notions other than the townspeople are like, well, it's wild and crazy out there. But she's like, it's not a city. Of course it's wild and crazy out there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't really talk about too much about my character's motivations without giving a whole lot away. But um, I think there was a line in the episode, something to the effect of, you know, I'm trying to figure out what happened in, in my land and that journey's brought me here. Um, And I can't really say much more than that, but um, from that, it's pretty obvious that my character doesn't want anything material from this, but (laughs) Um, some of those spiritual things can still be incredibly damaging. So um, I went to an anthropology talk like last fall here at the University of Wyoming, um, which it's kind of a long story about why I went. But um, one of the things about this talk was a lot of the reasons why we know a lot about indigenous people is because of missionaries. And that is 
Um, you know, and that's an incredibly exploitive relationship because they're coming into, like, they don't want anything material from the people, but they are coming from the outside to the inside with the intent to um, change their beliefs to something that is something that originated outside that culture. And even even non-material things, non-material desires can be just as damaging, if not more damaging to people um, than, uh, than the material exploitation. I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, and you brought up missionaries, and Cedric, I think, flat out said it. Um, so yeah, Cedric is a missionary. Uh, Fletcher is here for information. Lucanus is here for information. Kay lives here, and Artemis is, well... She she's she's here. Um, yeah, at, at this point, present. Yeah. Well, I, her motivations are perhaps a little uh, less clear than some other people's, but um, yeah. So at least at this point, it doesn't seem like anyone in the party does want any uh, material goods, as it were, from Arda. Right? You're uh, most of you who do have a, a reason for being here specifically want some sort of, yeah, intellectual or spiritual or maybe some combination of both um, gain from this. And so, yeah, that's really interesting to think about that, like, you know, how do we how do we use uh, places and cultures? Um, because, yeah, it's not just about taking things away. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's for the people at home. That's something definitely to watch, you know, just sort of pay attention to how we go into these areas, how we interact with people, and most importantly, how people interact or how people react to the way that we interact with them. Because, um, and I don't want to rehash everything on the on the minisode, <laughs> but um, I I think that a really good example of this really is um, how doctors have to fight Ebola in Africa because mm-hmm. there's there's been so much um, exploitation and people have treated a lot of people in African countries very like so poorly that people come in and we don't start from the place like this disease is what's happening to you. And, um, you know, we'd like to help. That's sort of where people assume that we start. No, the place, the, um, because of the exploitation in, in that country and, you know, a whole bunch of other things, I'm, vastly oversimplifying the problem but because of all the problems with the way the outsiders have um, treated a lot of people in these countries we literally have to start from a place where this disease exists um and that's that's a huge huge public health problem um Mm -hmm. just because of distrust and in many cases that distrust is logical and rational I think that um, this colonizer conversation um, and yeah, what we, what we did in the main episode was definitely a lot more than this. Um, But I think it's also important to uh, um, think about this. uh, Like we said, like, yes, we are um, right now, six white people, um, but we're doing our best to sort of like work through and learn this empathy in the real time of the game. Um, But that's also this idea of like, um, we are playing characters. And so like, even though we as people know that this idea of um, a colonizer mindset or colonizer behaviors, that that's wrong. And that, you know, we do our best um, coming from where we are coming from with the knowledge we have, we do our best to avoid those things in our real lives. Uh, The characters might not. And so it's this idea that like, uh, you know, we're, we're playing characters and we're not metagaming 
because what we're going to be doing is sort of like relearning those lessons, right? We're going to, to go through the process of um, exploring those moral and ethical dilemmas and, and sort of, you know, in real time, uh, rather than in, you know, decades or hundreds of years, um, do it in a few months of playing this game, perhaps um, relearn the lesson of why those things don't work and why they're bad. And yeah. um, so that'll be really interesting to watch, too, this idea that like, well, we know what the endpoint is supposed to be. But like, how how do our characters we actually get there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the watch the process will be really interesting. Sorry, One thing I, I kind of so there's a lot of kind of parallels that I have found so far in our game and even in our practice sessions that have like mirrored a lot of things that I see in Ecuador, which is really crazy. I kind of joke that Ecuador is stuck like throughout the ages, everywhere from the 1500s all the way up to 2019 in different aspects. Um, but one of the things is like. Uh, in the episode, I talked about this church of gold that had like five tons of gold in it, but it was actually run by the Jesuits who are really interested in learning and science. So a lot of like some of the original texts and a lot of some of the like original discoveries, however you want to say it, like them being written down and put down into a, a way that we can actually research and know about it, you know, was done by these, by basically these missionaries as well. Like they were interested in not just the like converting the locals with all of like all of the bad things that went along with that but you know they did take really good notes and they did actually have some really kind of like advanced at the time science like they even brought telescopes out here which was I mean I think it's pretty amazing for like the 1500s you know so and then um how do we get from the you know it seems like the relationship with the Jesuits was a pretty beneficial thing to people down there i mean at least for the most part uh i mean not really i mean they came in and they like wrote down all this stuff which is useful because we can look back and like you know yeah species and drawings and all that stuff but they also kind of like murdered and enslaved the locals and stole the gold to paint their church oh so it was the jesuits that it was the jesuits that (laughs) did that Okay, I um, I yeah, thought and there's was... like lots of religious iconography as well. So like the white saint is like there's like the devil like demon person which looks very indigenous in the painting, or is an indigenous person with like the white saint like killing them and like whatever. So like yeah, there it definitely it was, like, it was, wasn't good for the people. It was kind of the opposite because smallpox doesn't heal. Um. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like a reverse cleric situation there, as as far as I know. So, um, yeah, I had actually not known that it was the uh, Jesuits that um, that uh, uh, did all that stuff because I uh, previously lived in St. Louis, actually across from a Jesuit university. So I had the opportunity to meet a couple of the professors while playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, great Poke stops at the uh, Jesuit um, uh, school in Florissant, Missouri. Um, got, all, got a bunch of really great EVs, which were totally useful. But that is not the purpose of this conversation. <laughs> um, they always told me that they always came off to me as... Um, or presented themselves, I should say, as a uh, sort of more um, tame and... Uh, um, well, no one sells bad apples. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, that's true. They always um, tried to come off to me as more tame and intellectual, and I just um, had always thought it was, uh, um, you know, like um, other. Uh, I don't want to implicate any other, you know, um, sort of sects, but I thought it was other groups of Christianity that um, were responsible for that. So, I mean, I think they all took their toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. If you like, you can say like some are worse than others, but like at the end of the day, like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't remember if it, I don't remember who exactly told me this, but, um, when we were in Ecuador, somebody quipped that, you know, the entire history of South America is everybody was doing just fine. Lots of great flourishing civilizations. And then the Spaniards came and killed everyone. Well, like, that's the thing. I, I like the, what the Spanish did was like terrible. And I'm not going to say that it wasn't. Um, but there were like, at least in Ecuador, for, I mean, I can really only speak from Ecuador's history, but there were lots of indigenous cultures all throughout. Um, and then it was like the Incans that came up and murdered and took their cultures. So we kind of, for me, it seems like we tend to really be like, oh, the poor Incans, like we're like, you know, killed and destroyed by the Spanish, but really they did that first. Um, there's this really interesting site in the South of Ecuador called Inga Pierca, which just literally means like the Incan wall. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have like a real name to it. Um, but there is the people called the Canaries, um, and the Canaries like build in very like circular where the Incans like built like big square blocks mm-hmm. and made big square temples. Um, and normally when the Incans came, they would just like wipe out everything, wipe out the culture, wipe out the, the, like the structure and then build their own stuff on top of it. But this was a really interesting mix where the Incans still kind of did that, but they kept some of the original architecture and kind of built more on a circular. So they still built like temples with square blocks, but the temple was circular and some of the other living areas. Um, and only part of it remains because after the Incans came in, we're like, all right, we're going to stomp out your culture and like kind of half rebuild you. The Spanish came in and were like, you know what's convenient for building churches? Square blocks. Look at that <laughs> made of square blocks. Yeah. Um, so it seems really interesting that we team to like demonize the Spanish, um, but it was like that was happening here yeah. in our history and um, our history as if it belongs to me, it doesn't um, yeah. Ecuador's history as well. Like, you know, with the Incans coming up through Peru. So I think that's like a really, that, that to me was like kind of one of the more interesting points. Like the more yeah. I learned about the Incans, I was like, wow, they're, and so one of the things I'd really try and do on my tours is bring people to archeological sites that were even before the Incans got there wouldn't like some of the evidence of these early people and there there's not a lot of money to research them. Um, yeah. And there's like some areas like it, on the coast, for example, where like, Oh yeah, you can just find like bits of pottery from some of these ancient civilizations. So it's a wash up on the beach um, or just like show up in the rivers. Like I've, I've picked one up. Like you just like pick up a piece of a pot. That's like yeah. a couple thousand years old well, because no one's out there studying it, you know? Yeah. And in South America, um, I've, want to say this paper came out last year but uh what they found was um that fruit trees uh in the um, south american rainforest do not grow in um completely random um in completely random patterns they tend to grow around areas where we know that groups of humans lived and uh um you know, the, um, agriculture, I'm not exactly sure when the, when they're, when the South America, 
um, you know, when their agricultural system started, but it was obviously very, very complex, far more complex than we realize. And, you know, when I, when I made the statement in the, um, nature check discussion about having a long way to go, you know, I know that indigenous people fought wars. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't exactly grow up in an environment where this sort of stuff was taught. You know, I grew up in the Midwest and, um, there's, we'll just say there's some social issues with this sort of thing in the Midwest. And, um, you know, I sort of, uh, I was sort of taught the names of indigenous people and, um, you know, I can name certain tribes, Sioux, Cherokee, uh, Iroquois, and I have a rough idea of, you know, what lands that they sort of occupied before the settlers came in, but I know almost nothing of history because I wasn't taught it. And, you know, uh, we arrived at, we arrived in, um, you know, European people arrived in America, you know, 400 years ago, but there's, 9,400 or 9,600 years of history left where important things happened, including a giant friggin' plague, mm-hmm. um, you know, right around the time the Europeans arrived. So one that was analogous to the Black Plague in Europe, but most people don't even know about that. So, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to be educated more on that. And I, I joke all the time that I know more about uh, Ecuador's species, ecology, and history than I ever did from the United States. Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, and it's great that you incorporate that into your tours. Um, that feels like a great segue um, for us to do our first um, scientist spotlight as well. Yeah. Um, that's why Nancy is here with us right now, right? Um, so we want to know a little bit more about the person behind the character K and what you do and who you are. We've already yeah. heard a bit about your Ecuador experience, which always makes me so jealous because it sounds like an awesome place. Yeah. <laughs> Come visit me. <laughs> yeah, mentioning, mentioning in like uh, nature check, like I love it. I obviously chose it, um, but it's not without its problems. I'm not going to say it's perfect. And especially as we're talking about some of these social issues, like I feel like I talk a lot about like, this is my experience from the United States and this is my experience from Ecuador and they're just very different. Um, anyway, so my name is Nancy Miarelli. I am an entomologist, which means that I study bugs. Although technically now, I guess I'm not even a scientist. I am a tour guide. <laughs> so here in Ecuador, um, one of the things I noticed is that if you want a bird guide, there are tons of people ready to line up and tell you all about Ecuador's amazing birds. We have amazing biodiversity here. In one area of the cloud forest, there are 600 bird species out of the 1,500 that are in Ecuador out of the 10,000 worldwide. So like, just to give you an idea of like the biodiversity. And when I started asking people about insects, there is a couple of professors here um, who are really amazing and do really amazing work, but no one who really does them in the science communication tourism aspect. In fact, insect tours worldwide are not super a thing. So um, yeah, I decided to start my own tourism business, really focused on a lot of these issues that we're talking about, actually. Like, my whole jam is the interconnectedness of how ecology, like, geology shapes the landscape. So then that shapes the ecology, which shapes the biology that you find on it. And then how do people interact with this biology and how do people interact with conservation? And so um, in some areas, like the coast, 
which is 95% deforested, I really feel like you, you're on the forefront. It feels very much like the Wild West. I'm not the only person who has made that made that statement. I was like, oh, it's like the Wild West. Um, but you really see, like, I don't want, like, battles, like, a strong word, but, like... Conflict. Know, conflict, yeah, between co- the importance of conservation, but also... Like people need this land to give you things that you like, like bananas and coffee and chocolate and, you know, palm oils and Nutella, like for example. So um, I, one of the things that I personally really like and is an important part of the tours that I provide is that you don't see just like, I don't really super like going to the Amazon um, because I feel like it's kind of like Disneyland. You just show up and you're like, look at the monkeys. And then you like go and you sail and you like, you like go across the boat and you visit like a community and then you go back and you look at the monkeys again. So that to me, that feels very much like Disneyland. So I really like the coast because you're staying with local people. I come in, I'm like, this is my friend, Boris. He owns this land. He like, he's protecting it from illegal hunters let him tell you his story, watch how he does like traditional methods of grabbing like crabs out of the mangroves and like, let him share his home with you for today. And to me, um, I think that's a much more valuable experience having done a bunch of different types of tourism in Ecuador. So that's specifically what I focus on. Um, and so it's interesting because like a lot of, again, like a lot of things we've come up in our first play session and some of our practice sessions, like, oh my God, I've like literally lived this already. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, do you feel like Kay is going to bring any, any of those experiences from like the opposite side, or at least your interpretation of the opposite side? Um, Kay, I think it's very much like a blank slate. So I think she's going to be very impressionable by what's around her. But I also feel like, um, uh, like the town from what I can tell is mainly humans. Um, and she isn't quite human. Like she definitely has some, some features to her that are definitely not from this world. Hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't, don't, don't give anything and, away. <laughs> and, uh, and one of her best friends also is kind of like the demon people. And so she very much sees how he's treated. She's lived on the streets for a while. So she definitely sees like the differences between how different classes are treated um, like, like socioeconomic classes, not like yeah. rogue versus, um, and like how race and play, like is played. So she definitely has her own set of morals, but I think beyond that, like this whole idea of like colonization or whatever, I think she's going to be very like a blank slate to it. Yeah, she's so we'll see how she that. is shaped. Okay. All right. <laughs> And that maybe her her friends will have a an interesting influence on her, or maybe mm-hmm. she'll decide that she wants to sort of go counter to them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, at least in our practice sessions, she and Cedric did not get along. So, yeah. but he also, and we aren't supposed to remember that. So, but mm-hmm. Cedric did just like save her best one of her good friends' life because she is like very close to the townsperson. So like, she might be swayed initially by that so we'll see yeah we'll see how it goes um again like cedric's a a missionary um Kay is very solidly skeptical about the gods and religion especially because she's seen how like different people and different races are treated out on the streets so and um but she has like no biological knowledge she has no entomological knowledge she has no ecological knowledge like (laughs) she's like 
it's well, that's what I was going to say. I think um, you said you're not, you don't think you're a scientist anymore, but um, I, I don't know. Um, I think that anyone who is like actively and intentionally engaging with the science um, in in any way is a scientist. So I include um, our audience and okay. my, the audience of my science communication as scientists as well, because you're uh, actively curious and engaging with the world around yeah, you. Yeah, I think I had said that I'm like not a scientist, but I am an entomologist, which was a little bit backwards. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, well, I definitely am not like a researcher aspect of a scientist, but I very, very much am interested in science and like science and like reading research papers and then translating that into something that you know, most people can understand. Well, and also look at the value that you're providing to the scientific community, whether or not, whether or not you're a scientist, you are, you know, showing scientists, these scientists, these issues that they never would have thought Mm -hmm. about. And hopefully at least they'll go back into their labs and think maybe a little bit harder about some of these problems and come up with new questions because. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope that people really, you know, my big focus is conservation. I never formally studied like conservation biology, but I do consider myself like a conservationalist. Um, and I, my big thing is like, is like you don't get a plot of land and just say like peasants over there, don't touch it. We have built a fence around it, you know, yeah. which I think is like in the States, we're like, Oh, we have this national park and we have this and we have that. And then like that's farmland over there. And this is this national park. But when you get down to countries like this, where it like it, that just doesn't work. It, yeah. it just doesn't like people live in those areas. So even like in the Amazon where it's a national park and it is protected, indigenous Amazonian tribes are still allowed to do their traditional hunting. So yeah. they will shoot monkeys. And so, you know, like that's an interesting thing. Like how do you, you know, like monkeys are endangered species. Mm-hmm. They are like traditional people living their traditional ways like how can you tell them no so like that's where these hard questions come up and that's what I really want people to think about I don't care if you don't really have an answer to it I just want you to have at least like think about how messy conservation really is yeah no because um there's like any conversation about trophy hunting for example there are legitimate uses for trophy Mm -hmm. hunting as unpopular as it as it is to say um there are um, there are ways that trophy hunting can be done so that it's um, you know so that if you say remove older male animals from the population so that there's um, you know less infanticide for some species that's um, a good thing and mm-hmm. sometimes it takes it takes on the form of pest control you know people don't like to hear about lions being killed but you know if you're a cattle farmer in Africa that's how you make your you know that's how you make your living. If you have lions killing your cattle, they are pests and they, you know, they live around these things. And a lot of the people who complain about trophy hunting just don't. One of the uh, things I thought was really interesting. um, And so before I was doing my own tourism business, I was in in an eco lodge for two years. um, And one of the best things about being that is I got to talk to so many people from so many different backgrounds, from so many different countries. Um, And, we in especially the the cloud forest high andean region we have spectacled bears and one of their favorite foods are sugarcane and corn oh shit <laughs> which you can imagine is not great for the that local is, farmer they are not farm, popular yeah exactly so a lot of farmers will shoot the bears um 
And there's like this big kind of like, there's obviously a big disconnect here. And one of, I met this one tourist from England. He's like, yeah, farmers in England have badger insurance. So they're not supposed, they aren't supposed to shoot the badgers, but if the badger does damage to their crop, they're like subsidized by the government for it. Badger and he's insurance. Like, yeah, exactly. Huh. This is why I was like, wow, this is like, <laughs> um, so if anyone's watching from like Europe or England, like, let me know about that badger insurance. And he was like, you know, maybe a good option would be bear insurance. You know, you don't shoot the bear, the bear destroys your crop. And then it is like subsidized. Um, then the next question is like, Ecuador is like a relatively poor country. We're, we're developed. We're definitely not third world. So a lot of people are like, Oh my God, you're third world. Um, no, when- we're definitely developing. Quito is just as like first world. I'm running like high speed internet, et cetera, et cetera. I think just when, for Ecuador, there's a big, like there's a divide between like the rich people and the rural people who are typically yeah. poor. And like we that's see that where... in America too, although. And exactly. It's my point. It's like, um, you know, like compare New York to the middle of Louisiana, like completely different, mm-hmm. you know, I also can't, have... Oh, go for it. <laughs> so we have the same thing in Ecuador. So then the next question is like, if you had bear insurance, like how, how would the government subsidize well, that? I, I, would the, would the people like, would these, would these, Farmers out in Ecuador, would they even understand the concept of insurance? I mean, um, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. In, insurance is required. Like, oh, okay. um, health, we have we have health insurance oh, and there's that? car insurance. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Um, I, but what I, I wasn't. Was, yeah. What I was going to say is um, I feel like uh, that sort of uh, <laughs> pest animal insurance works better when you have um, systematically eradicated all of the other animals in your wild areas, uh, Europe. Um, so like, oh, all we've got yeah, left to worry true. about is badgers. Badgers, they, yeah. You know, they don't, they don't have um, wolves and coyotes and raccoons and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these other things that we have in North America. Or like, it's more than just bears in Ecuador, too. I must yeah. Say. Yeah. Fortunately, like bears are kind of like the only thing that really go after um, after those crops. Birds are actually like all the pretty tropical birds are actually big uh, pests, not big pests, but can be pests of like fruit. Um, so my boyfriend and I, we always have a joke like we have to get to the papayas before the tanningers do like and the yeah. toucans. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, is the papaya ready? <laughs> like, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to think about like what pest species are in different places. Like, again, I would have never considered a badger a pest, but that yeah. person from England did, and, and like a spectacled bear, which is an endangered animal. Um, it's endangered in Ecuador. It's it's doing pretty well in other countries, but in Ecuador, there were like there's a lot of pride around it. So, mm-hmm. and it's very threatened mainly because of habitat loss and fragmentation. Um, but to have like such a big like I don't know, charismatic megafauna be like, oh, that pest, you yeah. know? <laughs> well, and I mean, even those blue morphos um, that everybody loves, they're pests and bananas, right? Yeah, they eat something in the banana family. I'm not sure if it's exactly bananas. Okay, I thought they were pests of bananas. Um, I mean, they may be. I know they eat stuff in the banana family, so I'm sure if there's like a banana there, they will not hesitate to uh, partake. Yeah, and I'm kind <laughs> of the endeavor. same way. So actually, yeah. can I ask you kind of a dumb question? Are there are lawns, no dumb questions. Are lawns a thing in Ecuador? No. And actually that's the coolest thing. That's one of the things I talk about all the time. Um, out kind of in the more rural areas, like, yeah, you'll have like a clearing where there aren't really any trees and the weeds that spot up, like people will cut it down mainly with machetes because like 
that is prime snake habitat and we do have various dangerous snakes here. So they try and keep it like kempt in the fact that you cut it with a machete when it gets like ankle high. Um, but it's not grass, um, on the coast. So where my boyfriend is, it's like grass and wildflowers and like weeds and whatever else happens to be around, like more in the cloud forest. It's like cloud forest, like low, like first accession plants, which I have no idea what they are because I don't stay plants, yeah. but no lawns as like, we think about the manicured lawn is not a thing. And funnily enough, I, my friends here in like in the States have like live in a suburb with like the very typical manicured lawns. And I sent a picture and sent it to my boyfriend. He's like, wow, it looks just like the movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah. What do you, where do you think the movies were filmed? Yeah. So, yeah. Like the whole concept of a lawn is just not really, not really a thing. Why do you think that is? Um, like in well in the city like there's not space for it um out kind of more in the like richer suburbs i'd say like kumbaya would definitely have lawns behind them like that's pretty common um but it's just like again in this city so it's like not like you've really gone out yeah like the the habitat is already destroyed because you're in a city like (laughs) um but a lot of people are really into gardening and so they'll have like gardens around around the area and then in the cloud forest like why would you plant grass? Yeah. I don't know. Like, why do we even plant grass? Like, who told us it was a good idea? I don't well, just never... Um, there's <laughs> there's actually, um, like, I actually sort of had to learn about the history of lawns for the project that I'm working on, which is really <laughs> weird, because... Um, but no, so the reason why lawns were a thing is they originally started as grazing pastures for rich people in Europe, and then... Um, they became a sort of defensive mechanism because um, just nothing was growing there and people didn't have to, you know, walk up and people, they had to be able to see people walking up. And then it became a status symbol, essentially saying, hey, look at all this land that I'm not using for food production, peasants. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was kind of wondering if um, in an area with uh, less European influence, um, if lawns would be a thing. Yeah, we definitely have like pasture grass, but it's definitely, at least from what I understand, not the pasture grass that we have in the States. I'm not well versed in pasture grass. The only reason I think it's different is because people are like, what is this plant? I'm like, oh, it's the, it's the grass that they feed the cows. And they're like, really that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what I've been told by literally everybody. Mm -hmm. So that, um, And then, so when you start getting, uh, like, reforestation attempts, or even if it's just natural reforestation, you'll often see that that grass as, like, your early successor. I don't know if it's a native grass. I don't I, I don't know. It's just some grass that the cows eat. So, yeah. um, and then that grass seems to be just, like, left for pastures. And then, again, people's houses. The most thing with, like, a lawn would be all the soccer fields. Every yeah. little town has a soccer field, oh, and that yeah. is definitely grass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Soccer fields are... No, um, mm-hmm. I would I would imagine that that grass is um, something like either um, uh, either indigenous or something different than we used. Um, just yeah, it's the... tall. It's like when it cut, when it grows, it's like almost hip height, and the blades of grass are like that thick, yeah. and they're like kind of sharp on the side. That's the extent yeah, that I know about I, it. I would um, I would imagine that it's different uh, just because the different. Um, environment and geography and all that so i know i know nothing about pasture grass but i'm probably going to be learning that in the next year or so because hooray phd plant biologist ah um 
yeah, no, it's an exciting new field of study, and, you know, that lawn thing was kind of mind-blowing to me. And as I said, I've always wondered if it was in that area of the world. There, so. so it's really interesting also in Ecuador, um, like, different ecosystems. I know we're, like, super in the States, like, oh, wildflowers, wildflowers, wildflowers. Um, but in, like, cloud forest ecosystems, like, wildflowers aren't really a thing. You don't really – you don't have – unless it's, like, there's a tree fall gap um, or disturbed areas, you really don't get like flowers, like short little weedy flowers. Like you think about, so even if you like let your lawn go natural, it still wouldn't look like a natural lawn in the States filled with wildflowers and I don't know, like daisies and whatever, just like green leafy things that grow. (laughs) I've been loving hearing about your experience in Ecuador, um, Nancy, but, uh, how did you get there? And I know that question, um, sort of ties into the last thing that we wanted to talk about in this little mini episode. So yeah, tell us more about, um, how you wound up in Ecuador. Yeah. So, um, my, so I talked a little bit about this in the first episode. I talked about my advisor, but that was my previous advisor and I quit his lab and who took me in was this amazing professor, Marianne Shockley, who, um, met an untimely fate, unfortunately, uh, earlier this month. So anyway, she's the one who got me to Ecuador. Um, it was my first year of grad school. I had, we all have teaching duties. One of my students actually recommended me to her for her Ecuador term abroad program. I was like, Nancy's a great teacher. So like forever indebted to that student. Thanks Becca. (laughs) Um, And I was at the, I think it was the Christmas party my first year. And Marianne was like, she, she came up to me. She's like, hi, my name is Marianne. Um, I heard a lot about you from Becca. And I think you would be really amazing as a TA for this trip to Ecuador. Um, how would you like to get paid to teach students about bugs? And I was in the jungle. And I was like, yes, the paperwork. Let me sign right now. Like, I, like, I don't care. Yes. Um, and then so she took me that first year. And she also took Joe. That's where Joe and I actually became friends. Yep. And... Then after I after that first year, I redesigned the curriculum because I thought it could be a little bit more rigorous, and I thought we could ask some more of these kind of like interesting questions. And then that created job security, so she took me back the next two years in a row. Um, and then my master's was hard for me. Um, I think I definitely like to do things in an unconventional way, which is why I love this SciComm project because I'm all about unconventional SciComm. So uh, grad school did not treat me well. I thought I wanted to be a professor. I thought I was going to just do the academic PhD route. And then after my master's degree, I was like, ah, clearly not for me. So I'm going to run away to the rainforest for six months to figure it out. So the eco lodge that uh, we worked with for that term abroad, I was like, hey, do you want an entomologist for a while? And they were like, yes, please. So I showed up and six months turned into two years. And then when my volunteer visa was up, I had to make a decision. Am I going to go back to the States or am am I going to figure something out here? And I was like, I'm not going back. Like, this is my home now. (laughs) Like, I I love it out here. It's so, like, in some ways it's really wild and kind of allows you to create weird things and do things in an unconventional way. Um, So I really just fell in love with it. It was like, I'm going to make it work. And I really want to spread the, like, 
love of not just Ecuador, this country that I've fallen in love with, but also insects, get people to look at insects in a different way, like in a different situation, maybe a little bit more into it. And then also talk about all these issues about ecology and conservation as well. So yeah, um, yeah that's how I got here. Yeah. So uh, the reason why I went to Ecuador with Nancy is literally the exact opposite. Um so uh, Marianne, who was um, sort of a uh, friend at the time, uh, had known that I was having a little bit of trouble um, learning how to teach because the way that they teach you how to teach in grad school is essentially like trial by fire. They throw you into a <laughs> they classroom. They don't teach you. They yeah. aim. <laughs> yeah. They, they throw you into a classroom full of students and they're like, yeah, you're going to do well. And I did not. Or not. And it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. So, um, you know, Marianne saw that I was struggling and, um, you know, uh, invited me down and, um, you know, did a lot of work with me, uh, showing me how to work with students and properly teach and all that. And um, I think the students help, too, with you, to be honest, because like one thing I love to remember that's one of the things that I really want to start working with is because like it kind of breaks down a lot of those barriers. So yeah. I felt like the students would be a lot more candid with all of us, which I think was really good for all of us to grow. Yeah. Not, not yeah. And, um, you know, that that was you know, I sort of told this story on Twitter, but, um, you know, it really bears repeating. Uh, she had this huge impact on me because um, she, along with you, um, taught me a lot about teaching. And, um, you know, I, uh, uh, I wouldn't essentially be the person that I am today without that experience. And, um, you know, I'm going to be teaching uh, again um, here in about a year. Um, and I'm going to take a lot of the lessons that she taught me and um, a lot of her philosophies with me. And uh, it's not, you know, I'm not going to have the trouble that I had last time. So, and as, as I said, it's all because of, you know, her reaching out and her wanting to work with um, somebody who is struggling so extensively. And God damn, that is more rare than I, than it should be. Um, and Marianne for for me too, like really encouraged me to do things that were considered weird. Um, like for me, science communication was always really important. And she was like, I don't care what the rest of the department thinks. Like if it's important to you, like mm-hmm. pursue it in any way that makes sense to you. If teaching is important to you, like pursue it. She let me redesign a lot of her courses. She let me, she even like invited me to co-teach uh, a brand new class, forensic entomology, mm-hmm. and kind of do things in my way. Like I did a, I made a role-playing um, like case study that people like the students had to figure out and solve and do. And, you know, it was such kind of like an, a non-traditional way. And she was like, Oh, that sounds so cool. Just go for it. So when I sat down, like in that moment that I was, I was, my visa was up and I was like, do I stay or do I go? I was like, I'm thinking maybe about doing like these weird bug tours. And she was like, go for it. Oh honey, like do it. You'd be like really good at it. Um, so she was really influential in that way, just kind of like she was so brave. Like one of the things that I always remember about her is like she, um, she did all the outreach and I feel like she got some flack from our department for really oh, focusing God, on yeah. that over um, over research. And for her to just be like, no, go for it. Like do what you believe in. You're going to like it's going to be so much better for you. She really gave me, I'd say, like the bravery to stand yeah. up and be like, I'm going to do this weird, crazy thing that I think no one else has done. And I'm just going to like figure it out, I guess. 
Um, but it was really because she not only encouraged me, but gave me steps along the way, like designing that forensic entomology course. That I had no idea how to do. She was like, you can figure it out, figure it out. We'll do it together. Don't worry about it. Like she, she really encouraged me to take on challenges and, yeah. and like not be afraid of them. Yeah. yeah. And she was very hands-on too, which again, oh, um, you know, it's not a, not a lot of, you know, I've been in academia a lot. I've seen a lot of crap and, um, you know, not a lot of, I think she's the only professor that I've ever seen that worked that hands-on with students, not Mm -hmm. only, not only her own students, but other, the students of others, you know, reaching out to me the way that she did. She really taught like how to be kind as well. Like if a student is struggling or anyone is struggling like with their work, there's probably an underlying an underlying something. Yeah. Even if it's just as simple as like the student isn't interested or thinks it thinks it won't matter to them or they're actually struggling with some kind of big life thing in the background. She was always like, you know, how can we meet these students halfway to get them on board? Yeah, and that was that was a point That's- that she stressed repeatedly um, to me. And because of my academic background at the time, uh, I didn't believe that that was important because that's mm-hmm. kind of how I was taught. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, uh, she sort of disabused me of those notions. And really- She's supposed to be here right now, actually. Um, I got the call and she was supposed to be in Ecuador like three days later. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, I had, um, you know, I had, so for ESA, uh, ESA this year is going to be in, um, St. Louis, uh, which is an area that I know really well. And there's this, there is this. Yeah, I remember uh, I was supposed to stay at your house before you decided to go for a PhD program. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, but uh, so there's this there's this uh, restaurant in um, St. Louis called Mission Taco that's basically the Marianne Shockley of tacos. They try all sorts of weird things, and um, I had actually been putting off a call because of all this um, because the move to the new program um, about maybe um, having. Uh, team up between David George Gordon and Mission Taco, which is something that she had eaten there once. I know that (laughs) she would have moved heaven, hell, and earth itself to make happen um, with, you know, because for entomophagy stuff. And um, maybe I should have gotten the ball and rolling on that six months earlier because I'm never going to have the chance to make that phone call now. So... Um, yeah, so, uh, Marianne Shockley is, um, you know, there's so many people who have stories just like ours. It's, you know, we are not the only two stories out there by any means. Um, you know, anybody from University of Georgia who was ever an undergrad or a grad student there likely has a similar story. And, um, you know, a lot of people who met her at conferences, you know, they certainly were like other random things that she did. Like Marianne even gave me the opportunity to bring bugs to dragon con and be invited as a professional at dragon con. Like, yeah, she was really all for this kind of like weird, like crazy, like any outreach that you possibly could do anything that was creative. She was really for So She, she was very good at seeing opportunities to make connections that even a lot of people in the psychom world miss. And mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, 
but no, I just, um, I just wanted to have a conversation with her just, um, because we lost somebody really important, um, to both me and Nancy personally recently, but, you know, the scientific community is worse off as a whole because we lost this amazing teacher and mentor and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a major event, um, that, yeah, so... Well, um, it, it very much sounds like her legacy for being brave and taking chances on things that are important lives on in people like you. So that's, yeah. uh, that's very comforting to know. This project never would have happened without her. Ask an entomologist wouldn't have happened Ask without an entomologist. her. I kind of think that anyone who, like, sh- her influence has just rippled. So if I have someone on a tour who hated bugs before and then I'm like, okay, maybe you should, like, not kill them. And they're, like, come around to that, you know? Yeah. And then, go and they tell the next person like hey I had this amazing experience like I feel like she influenced like all four of us in that chain you know yeah which we kind of didn't plug ask an entomologist in the first episode (laughs) of nature check I sort of feel bad about that um (laughs) you've got time (laughs) yeah yeah uh so ask an entomologist is the other project that Nancy and I run we answer questions about um other people's questions about insects Um, Okay, so, uh, yeah, so we um, talked uh, about Marianne and her um, influence from our grad school experience up to our current SciComm projects, including asking it from asking entomologists to this one and including your tours. Um, So, yeah, is there anything that we should add on that? No, I think we're yeah, we're good. Uh, So, you know, this is an episode, it's our first episode, and we are not going to end this episode on a, um, on these sorts of episodes on such a dour note. So is there anything, um, anything that's been really good that's happened to you guys? Um, like any sort of like good distractions or nice things that you've found or enjoyed recently? (laughs) My Um, tourism business is going like incredibly well, like more better than I ever like imagined slash to the point where it's almost overwhelming so like that's exciting but terrifying all at the same time but also yeah (laughs) and we were talking about field work earlier and terrible weather and I went out and checked my insect traps for the first time this season earlier this week and they were not all flooded yay Yay. that was actually (laughs) I tried doing pitfall traps in the jungle and they don't work yeah. Because they just flood. Well, you have to do them differently, I guess. I've read I guess, many, but many I papers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to, like, do some quick ones. For... Yeah. But, yeah, there's a lot of things in that don't work in the jungle. Here's, like, a funny thing about the jungle. You know how, like, we have the ground beetles, like, carabids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, most of them actually aren't even on the ground in Ecuador. Most of them are on leaves. Yeah. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who named these? Someone... <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, I think oh, Nancy's no. clearly out. not from. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. Well, that must be the signal that we're uh, done. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Um, on my on my end, I'm I'm actually really enjoying the project that I'm on. Um, so I've, like, it's a really kind of dumb question, but people don't really understand how weeds damage crops, and it's really fascinating to me that nobody's thought about asking that question for, like ever since agriculture started. Um, 
So, yeah, and then the other thing uh, that I'm really excited and happy about is um, Good Omens dropped on on, uh, Amazon Prime, and it is as close to the perfect TV series, at least for me, that I've found. So I've been really enjoying that. (laughs) Embrace your nerddom. Oh, I know what else I'm excited about. Um, Today was the first day of June, and um, the restoration section of the other ESA that I'm a member of, so the Ecology Society Society of America. So I have both marketing. Yeah, the Ecology Society and EntSoc. So, um, but the Ecology Society's restoration section, I've been working with um, one of the people who's sort of in charge of that. And uh, June is uh, hashtag iRestoreMonth on Twitter. Um, So if you search uh, hashtag, if you search hashtag iRestore, um, you should find a whole bunch of tweets from restoration ecologists talking about um, who they are and what work they do where and why. And it's going to be awesome. one of those where every day has a theme and we're going to talk about restoration ecology. So oh, that's awesome. <laughs> very, awesome. Yeah. very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, and by the way, we need to, uh, um, we need to find a way to give a talk at the European Space Agency, you know, one of their conferences, so we can just hit <laughs> all the ESAs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And I'm probably going to make that joke to my professor at some point, so I hope he's not watching this, because <laughs> it'll ruin the joke. So, anyways, um, yeah, so I think that uh, those are all good things, and this is a good first mini episode we had a fantastic conversation and and a lot of fun playing the games um and uh you know in terms of like holidays or whatever it's uh uh, pride month so um you know happy pride month to everyone um okay so i think that's it so uh yep take care viewers and uh hopefully uh we'll see you again next week thanks everybody oh and hopefully we'll have a mailbag next week so (laughs) (laughs) all right so i am going to stop recording